When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hey, everyone. My guest today is writer, director, actor, and producer Lena Dunham, who you know from her iconic series, Girls, and whose latest film, Catherine Called Birdie, is available now on Prime Video. Lena and I talk about the house bunny after having watched the Secrets of Playboy documentary, the conflict of wanting and not wanting to be noticed, the difference between British and American men, learning from heartbreak, how Lena met her husband, directing, acting, and a lot more. Then we talk with Haley, who, after a drunken night, slept with a good friend after he told her that his long-distance relationship wasn't going well. Now the couple is married, the wife knows everything, and Haley is getting all the blame. As always, thank you for listening to Unqualified. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, we would love to hear from you. Just look for the link in our show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Lena, I am so happy to see you. I mean, the amount of times I've watched The House Bunny just to feel safe is astounding. I love that The House Bunny is your safe movie. Even though I know <laughs> that she goes through some challenging things, it's my safe movie. <laughs> the Hugh Hefner world. I know. I just started watching The Secrets of Playboy documentary, which is heartbreaking and disturbing, to say the least. And I had all of these weird memories from when we filmed at the mansion Holly was showing me Hugh's bedroom. Yes. And then she asked me to come sit on his bed with her. And so I did. It was memory foam. Oh. In hindsight, I don't know what that meant now. <laughs> I wonder if Holly, who has now expressed that living in the Playboy Mansion wasn't all it was cracked up to be, was like trying to send you a little signal like, Get me out of here. Get me out of here. It's memory foam. Or just like share this with me because I feel alone. I mean, isn't it wild, the things that people do that they don't even understand why they're doing them? Or was I being recruited? Because I'm really slow on that pickup. I've never thought anyone was hitting on me until their tongue was all the way down my throat. <laughs> I wouldn't even know. I wouldn't even know. And I also experienced you as someone who wouldn't, like, you looked so amazing in that costume. And it's funny because you were occupying the costume in a way that was obviously very specific and at times ironic but it doesn't mean you didn't look like the thing that they wanted. Do you know what I mean? It's so odd because you were dressing like a Playboy bunny within the confines of this character, but to them, you may have just looked like a Playboy bunny. 100%. And that is a fascinating thing of like signals being crossed. It really is. The first few days wearing those little tiny things, I was robed up all the time. Yep. I was not owning it. I did not understand it. You're right, though. Like, cast and crew treated me differently. You were suddenly that thing. And Lena, embarrassingly, it felt really nice. Of course it did. Like, I remember once I was going through just a bad moment and I just wasn't eating very much. And I lost a bunch of weight, not on purpose, but because it just happened to me. And suddenly the way that people were dealing with me, whether it was just like a guy looking at me differently or opening a door or whatever. It was like the feeling of being seen in a certain way. It both made me angry, but it also felt really good. And facing the fact that it felt good felt bad. It was so layered. Completely. 
When I was making The Dictator, I wore this really short brown wig and like baggy overalls and nobody noticed me. I would wander around the streets in New York. The only people that noticed me, like one time I went into Macy's and a security guard followed me around. Do you remember when Tyra Banks on her short-lived but extremely important talk show put on like full fat suit and prosthetics and like walked around the city with a camera to like basically do an investigative report about how people would treat her? The shocking conclusion was not as well. But I remember watching it being like, just the idea that you needed to do that to figure out that moving through the world and that body wasn't as forgiving. I think a lot about why I bleach my hair, like why I bleach my hair this much. It attracts a lot of attention. When I bleached my hair that color, I remember really noticing a shift in how people responded because there is something about that blonde. I just wrote a big essay about Marilyn Monroe for Vogue and about sort of my coming to understand her in a different way because I realized this year that I'm the same age that she was when she died, but she always seemed both as old as the hills and as young as anything. But that hair color, it's like a Pavlovian response that people have to that hair color. I have it too. Like I remember as a kid, you know, my mom was always like mysterious. She had dark hennaed hair. I always thought she looked like Morticia and it was really cool. But I remember thinking when I would see someone with like a blonde mom, just being like, wow. I wanted to ask you about England because when I was a teenager growing up in Seattle, I imagined marrying some British guy who was kind of cynical and not very enthusiastic probably because that's what I was like at the time. Well, I have to say that I do think that Englishmen, especially because, and my husband is also Peruvian, so he has like a warmth and an emotional openness that I feel like is unusual for someone with his English accent. That being said, I think that English guys and the thing you're describing of kind of like a wry sense of humor, everything's fucked, so why don't we just make a joke about it? like not super emotional, but always making the kind of slightly cutting remark that they really like loud, independent and slightly messy American women. Like it offsets it well. It's almost like two astrological signs that go well together. I'm interested in the idea of like how we apply national identity, how it's almost inescapable from us, especially as Americans. A hundred percent. How does that feel over there? What's interesting is like, at first I was like, oh my God, these people are horrified by me just because my natural response is to like walk in everywhere and like hug the man who just sold me noodles. Like I just can't not. And then I realized that actually it took a second, but they were sort of amused. It's like their kind of reserve is something that they don't mind having disrupted. My dad said the funniest thing when I was about to meet my husband's parents, he was like, just remember, Americans think that English people are stuck up and boring and English people think Americans are uneducated and uncouth. And I was like, well, OK, perfect. We can all learn something from each other. You know, I was thinking about the idea in your work. I mean, you're a New Yorker, which the stereotype of that is also someone who is like hardened to experience. Yep. Well, they're not surprised by much. Like I remember a kid casually telling me at my preschool that he had seen a severed arm outside of his house. <laughs> oh God. Whether that was true or not. I saw an arm. Yeah, that was literally, that's, <laughs> do it one more time. It's so cute. I saw an arm. <laughs> now I want to write a movie in which you play a New York preschooler. Oh, Lena, don't you even get me started. I will pitch you a gazillion ideas. I would love to work with you. Oh, it's a dream of mine. I think you in Lost in Translation is one of the funniest performances that anyone's ever put in. That's one of a thousand I could name. That being said, New Yorkers, hardened to experience, don't seem shocked by much. That being said, my whole life, Cab drivers have always asked me in New York, where are you from? And when I say New York, they're like, what? Like when I went to college in Ohio, my vibe made a lot more sense. Like my family is all cool, calm, collected New Yorkers. And then I'm the one like when I was little, my mother said a man was like measuring my foot at the shoe store. You know, that little measure they uh -huh. use on kids feet. And she said, I just leaned over and kissed him on the lips. And she was like, what the fuck is up with this child? Like, have I taught her nothing? <laughs> That's amazing. But it gets to my point because I was thinking about your reflections on cynicism because 
your work never leans, I think, towards the expected. Something that I try to do in my work is that I actually tend to, despite the fact, you know, we've all had challenging things happen in our lives and many of us have issues with anxiety and fear. But I try always to show in my work that I feel really amazed by this thing called being alive and I feel a lot of joy even in the midst of sorrow. And I really always feel like if I'm cynical, that's when it's over. Like if I'm cynical about the fact that I get to do this job, if I'm cynical with my characters, I feel like the work that I've made that hasn't been successful to me is because I didn't surprise myself with actually how beautifully loving people can be towards each other. You know, I never want to write just a sea of bad men who hurt women. I never just want to write a sea of assholes at parties who make you feel bad. And one of the reasons when I saw you at the Emmys, I was like, that is my sis, is because we both, even amidst hard things, are delighting in life. I hope so. I think it's a harder choice at times, you know? I do. And it's funny because some of the people that we meet in this business who project the most sunniness kind of publicly, you meet them and you can just feel that that in a certain way has like hardened them. And I actually think people sometimes feel like, wow, you've been through so much in the past five years and you've really talked about it. And I'm like, I actually think vulnerability and keeping those channels open allows more space for joy than projecting a perfectly sunny exterior. Completely. Okay. So Catherine called Birdie was a book that you loved. Will you tell us about it? And now it's your movie. And now it's my movie, which is like the most surreal and wonderful consequence of doing this job is that like I was one of those kids. I literally read so much, read at the dinner table, would read on the sidewalk and my parents would have to guide me because I was like going to trip because I was reading a book as I walked to school. I would always hide a book inside of my math textbook. Like I remember the feeling of just crawling into a book like it was a new body, a new skin. And it's ended up being the feeling that I get out of writing is that feeling that I got out of reading. And Catherine called Birdie. Will you give us a little synopsis? Yeah. So it was a book that I read for the first time when I was 10, and I probably reread it twice a year for the next 10 years. It's about a girl named Catherine. They call her Birdie in 1290 England, and she's 14, and she basically gets her period, and her parents decide it's time to get her a husband. Get out of the house. You're bleeding. Yeah, you're bleeding, and it's time for you to go. That's the energy. And so she's like, I'm not fucking doing this. I don't want to get married. I don't want to be a lady. I'm not interested. And it's like about her revolt against the customs of her time. And I really loved it as a kid. And also, I just love movies that are aimed at teens, specifically teen girls. I love books that are aimed at teen girls. And I love things that honor the intelligence of young women because I was so hungry to feel seen at that age. And so this is sort of my ode to and loving, hopeful gift for teenagers. I can't wait to see it. And I love your leading lady, Bella Ramsey. She's everything. I mean, I was just been with her the last few days. She's about to turn 19. When I met her, she was about to turn 16. And I just can't believe teenagers these days, so self-possessed and wise and politically and emotionally aware. Like, I'm always thinking that I'm going to, like, step in and kind of save her from things or fix things. And then it's like she does the reverse and does it to me. Right. Like, I'm like, oh, you don't need me. You're fine. You're fine. Like, if I were to ever direct, what kind of advice, like, what have you learned? Well, I feel like you'd be an amazing director because, for me, the quality that I like most in a director, if I'm being directed or working with someone on a TV show that I create, whatever it is, is empathy and being able to understand, especially with actors, what each one needs to be able to do their job and give it to them while also being able to convey and execute a vision. And clearly not all directors do that. Some kind of operate in a more dictatorial way. But for me, the advice I always give is like, you know how to do this because you've watched it and you're brilliant. And you have to lean into the thing that is your contribution to directing. Like for me, I know all my directing springs out of my writing. And so how connected I am to my writing allows me to tell people their backstories, allows me to communicate to the crew what things should look like and feel like. And then I also just really try to run a set where people feel like they have the environment that allows them to do their best work, where they don't feel judged, where they don't feel exhausted, where they don't feel 
steamrolled over. But I think with you, whatever quality you feel like draws you to storytelling, you lean into that quality and like use it as the starting off point for all of your contributions on set. What do you do when an actor delivers a line that you've written and their musicality is different than how you've heard it? That's a great question. Sometimes I go, wait, that's different, but give me a second. Maybe it's better. Like maybe I'm so attached to the thing that I initially created that their interpretation is going to bring something to it. And I try to think about that for a second. If it turns out their interpretation is not going to bring something to it, (laughs) then what I try to do is not deliver a line reading, but just say something like, you know, maybe the line is more about blank and see if that pushes them in the other direction. And if it doesn't, then you might be able to say something like, I feel like really lean on this word. Let's hit the pedal on that. And sometimes I've had an actor be like, do you want to just give me a line reading? Oh, yes. I want to honor a vision. And if I'm not getting it, sometimes it feels simply the most efficient. And also with my upbringing, there wasn't an emphasis on necessarily the creative process or your character or whatever. Yeah. Like growing up under that, I don't have any preciousness, I guess, about that kind of ego. If I feel strongly, I will attempt to make my point, but I'm just never offended by the idea of a line reading, and I appreciate it. Well, I love people who aren't precious about their process, period, but I also really love to honor process because sometimes it's what gets you the most beautiful results. It's always about that dance. What are the qualities in a director that you like the most and least? Like, what are the things that make you feel really able to create? And what are the things where you're like, oh my God, if this person says one more word to me, I'm going to stamp on their foot? Well, it's never been the latter. It's always been, this person scares the shit out of me. Yep. I appreciate a director who likes actors, who's watchful. I think one of the challenges for an actor is simply gauging where you are in the story. Yep. So that kind of calibration because you're shooting out of order. So that's really important to me to have someone to kind of fine tune, like right after this and right before this, here's where you're at. I like getting a reminding gauge of those ideas. But just like you said, I think someone who's empathetic, can I speak ill of the dead? I think it's one of the top things that we need to do in life. I think the idea that once someone dies, they're like an untouchable creation. Like in my house, one of the ways that we honor my grandmother is by talking about what a cunt she could be. Yeah, sure. That's what you need to do. We're like, we miss you. We love you. And that woman was a fat phobic little bitch. But I miss her. So yes, the answer is yes. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, one of my hardest film experiences was with Ivan Reitman. Yeah. I mean, the idea of attempting to make a comedy under this, like, reign of terror, he was a yeller. He would bring down somebody every day. And my first day, it was me. Which film was this? It was called My Super Ex-Girlfriend. Yes. And my very first scene was a fight sequence with Uma Thurman. Jesus H. Christ. It was just the beginning of it. So we did the rest of the fight much later, but it was all really hard. It was New York. It was winter. And I wear a red wig. And right before I'm in hair and makeup and my hair lady knocks over a big jar of wig glue. It was like a court. Oh. And it's all over. I had this Yves Saint Laurent sweater that my character was wearing. They only oh. had two of them for a fight <laughs> sequence. You got it for a fight <laughs> sequence. I always say, go to H&M. Get us eight cheapies if we're putting anything on it. 
Oh, so I was like 20 to 25 minutes late on my very first. Through no fault of your own, you'd had a quart of wig glue dumped on your costume. And I was terrified, truly, that my first day, Ivan thinks that I'm some kind of diva that's of course not coming out of my trailer. And also it would be classic on a movie set if everyone's trying to cover their own tracks. So nobody says, I dumped a quart of wig glue on, on it. Oh, man. I'm like in the middle of the street that's all lit. You know, it's a night shoot, and Ivan is just taking me down. Was he yelling at you? Yeah, he was just like, Annie. He always called me Annie. He's like, you can't play like that around here. Like, this is not like... And I was like, don't do it. Don't cry. No crying. And I felt angry and hurt. Of course. And humiliated. Of course. And defensive. Eventually, I said, did no one tell you what happened? And at that point, he kind of just shut up. And then he, like, went behind the camera. But then later, he slapped my ass, too. That was a weird moment. I don't think you're the first person who's reported that. And I'm so sorry you had that experience. And did no one step in and say no? No. It was, like, 2006. So it was before there was any kind of mobilization. Totally. My mother always refers to it when everybody kind of props up one man and is quiet around him. She calls it great man syndrome. And everyone had a bad case of great man syndrome. I visited one of his sets once just to sit and watch for a few minutes. And I remember thinking, this is a comedy, but no one's laughing and everybody's scared. (laughs) Yes. It was like, I'm going to lay low and play it safe. I am taking zero risk in this movie. Do you ever look back at all those experiences, especially because Hollywood is always hard, but for you, I mean, you've been doing this job now for a long time. Do you ever just look back and go like, I cannot believe some of the shit that I have survived and done and seen? Yes. And sometimes like with that incident, I think that I'm still of the generation and of the mentality of like how to calibrate that element. Like on one hand, it wasn't anything, whatever. My ass is fine. Yeah. On the other hand, it was like... I did have like 30 people around me, I think, expecting me to do something, and I didn't. But also in the reverse position, would any of them have done something in that context with the kind of training? That's the thing is that a director isn't just a person, they're a symbol and they're a figurehead. And it really is that sort of the fish rots from the head thing. And they create the mentality and everybody becomes either as open as they are or as emboldened as they are or as shut down as they are or as angry as they are. But a director always has to remember that people are automatically trained not to be honest with them. And so it's always pushing back and trying to create a space where people do feel comfortable enough to tell you what they need and to put people around you where if they don't want to tell you what they need. That's why I love having an intimacy coordinator because if an actor is even remotely anxious about something they have to do, there's someone who's not the director that they can go and talk to and say, you know what, I'm not feeling so good. And they don't have to feel like they're going to be a diva or a pain. All the things you felt that day and on that set were things you were in a way being trained to feel. Yes. And I think my early experience, it was that time, you know, it was that time still. When you speak about figurehead, I think that there was a mentality that it was supposed to be something else. It was supposed to be an asshole as a figurehead. Yeah. A scary one. Lena, will you tell us about a heartbreak in your life? Oh, yeah. Romantic or any kind? Well, I'm always interested in the romantic, but any kind. Well, I remember the first time that I really had my heart broken, like I knew what a broken heart felt like, was when my college boyfriend and I broke up. We had been together for 14 months, and I thought it was like as long as any married couple. Like I was like, we will be together forever. You're in Ohio. I'm in Ohio. I was a junior in college. I met him because I was making a short film where I walked around pretending to be soliciting sex from people on campus. I was trying to do like a, I mean, I wouldn't say it was my greatest work, but I kind of like found comedy. Like I really thought I was like the Ali G of campus. So you can imagine (laughs) that was very annoying. And I stopped him and filmed him for this. And he was so sweet and genuine and responded to me so kindly on camera that I couldn't even do the bit because he was being so sincere. Like, I was like, hey, like, want to go back to your place later? Like, it'll only be $100 for my time. And he was like, yeah, I'd love to have coffee with you. Oh, how nice. So such a nice boy slash man. Now a man. He worked in the computer lab. So I kept like showing up to the computer lab. 
And then there was like a night on campus called Safer Sex Night where everybody went to a party and dressed in little outfits and made out with everybody. And he and I like skipped it to like watch a French movie in my dorm and finally kissed. It was like the biggest deal of my life. I'd never had a boyfriend before. I was a late bloomer. I'd never had anyone who was like, I will be your boyfriend. And we got together and it was like, I'd never been in love before. I couldn't believe what it felt like. Like I remember walking down the street in New York in the summer and he was in Ohio and I was home with my family and just walking and being like, I'm in love. I'm in love. And then it was like, I had to tell him, like I was like choking on it. And I went back to be with him in Ohio for the summer and we would like take walks at night and make out in the graveyard and do a cookout. And he was a very gentle, kind person, loved yoga, a dancer, just a tender man. I love that your first boyfriend was a kind person. I feel like that's a rarity. It's so rare. And, you know, I made some mistakes after him and I'd had some traumatic experiences before him, but he was such a healing presence in my life. So loving, so kind. So then what happened? It's a great question. We decided to move back to New York. I graduated. He had stayed in Ohio for another year. We moved back to New York and he started to have like a real spiritual seeking. He was from Colorado and he wanted to be back with his family and he wanted to be in a new iteration of his life. He was getting really into kind of like certain spiritual concepts that looking back were a little over my head, but now I would probably find really interesting. I kind of got back to New York and wanted to like hit the scene, trying to make movies. And he was figuring out his aspirations were not outward. They were inward. And he decided that he was going to go back to Colorado and spend some time with his family, but we were going to stay together. And then he basically called me and was like, I just can't do this anymore. I can't be in a relationship with anyone. Like I have to basically be a lone cowboy and figure out what I'm about It was that really pivotal moment. And I was at my parents' house and I was on the phone with him and he said it and I just dropped to my knees. Like I'd never felt anything like it before. I like literally hit the ground. And this is so embarrassing. My parents were at a restaurant and like I knew what restaurant they were at and I couldn't reach my mom and her cell phone. So I called the restaurant and made them get my mother from her table. Because I was just like, I can't survive this alone. And I walked around New York crying for two months. I remember eating a couple of vegan hot dogs and crying, going up to Central Park and just crying on the subway there, crying on the subway back. You know what's confusing about that particular breakup too, that heartbreak, is that I had that raw feeling when my high school boyfriend, we went to college together when he broke up with me. Who would ever break up with you? Oh, I adore you. But I at least was armored with the idea of injustice. That's exactly right. You weren't. That's confusing. I couldn't say an ill word about this way because I was like, I love him. Like, I can't be mad at him. He didn't do anything wrong. All he wants to do is understand himself. I mean, I'm sure I found a way to act mad at him, but I couldn't. I mean, in later heartbreaks, I have to say that thing that you said, armored with the idea of injustice is such a beautiful phrase because in every breakup thereafter, I had a very clear reason to be irate. And being irate really kind of propels you up and out of your pain. Yes, yes. I remember my mother said to me when I was just crying and crying and crying about my lovely college boyfriend, she was like, I think you're going to find that there's a certain elegance to having your heart broken. That is a beautiful way to put it. She was like, because you can kind of sit there and be like, I'm a person who feels... I've been through this thing and I'm moving through the world with my head high, knowing that even in this pain, I am full of love and clarity. And I did feel that way. And I do feel like it opened me up in these remarkable ways. Isn't it wild to look back at the things that we considered to be romance and be like, oh, what? Like, I used to think men really aggressively and quite maliciously teasing me was like love. I dated this guy for a while who was like, right after I did the first season of Girls, I like met him at the rap party. He was a friend of a friend. And he was like, yeah, like, I guess you directed some episodes of this, but like probably your cinematographer did it. Oh, wow. And I was like, yep. And then I dated him for six months. I was like, this guy is hilarious. (laughs) Like he doesn't, he doesn't hold me on a pedestal. Like he really gives it to me straight. Like I love that. And like, I actually think that my heartbreak over my first college boyfriend and how lovely he was, in a way, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do that again because it hurts too much. I'm going to go date some bad boys. 
And my husband is the first person I told him when I met him, I was like, in some really lovely ways, this reminds me of what it was like for me to first be in love and to be in love with someone who was kind. Like it has the same rhythms in a really (sighs) nice way. And I think when I was younger, I thought, oh, it's so sad. I'll never have a first love again because nothing can ever be as good. But then you start to realize new kinds of love can keep surprising you. And I think one of the great things about getting older I mean, I always joke is that my brain cells are dying. So I'm like kind of just leveling out. (laughs) I feel the same way. Hormones. Now I have an estrogen patch instead of ovaries. So my hormones are kind of nice and steady. Never the euphoric high, but never that satanic low. I'm chilling right at the center and I'm fine with it. I think that love, it's nice that we can love more evenly. Yes. And that maybe we don't feel like the marker of love is these outsized, intense, wild, like you don't need to have a crazy screaming fight in the street, then make up by hiding in a room together for three days. It can be below deck Mediterranean every (laughs) night. (laughs) That's the best. I mean, we're very into interior design masters. Oh, I'll have to check that out. That's an English interior design program that you and your husband might enjoy together. We would love it. He seems wonderful, by the way. He is wonderful. Every time I've seen a picture of him, I've gone, that man is handsome and looks cozy. He is. He loves me so well. So beautiful. And he's taught me how to love better, whether he knows it or not. Isn't that amazing? I feel like being with my husband has made me a better daughter, a better sister, a better friend. (sighs) Just because the evenness with which he accepts me makes me more even. I'm kinder to myself, which allows me to be more present for other people because I'm not wrapped up in my own shame and anxiety. You know, I never want to be that woman who's like, my husband saved my life. It's almost like it doesn't sound politically correct. But the fact is, is that he didn't save my life because he's my husband, but he saved my life just because of the person that he is and what he's offered me. And it was like, he just showed up and just went. How did you guys meet? We were set up on a blind date by my friend Honor. And I was in London. It was like full lockdown pandemic. I was having like a completely ridiculous heartbreak about some little thing that had fizzled out. And he was like, you need to get it together, lady. And he was like, who are you spending time with? And I was like, no one. I've been alone for 14 days in this studio apartment with a weird Ikea bench. He basically said like, I'm going to find you someone. Give me 10 minutes. I've got eyes everywhere. And literally 10 minutes later, he texted me a picture of my husband and said, this guy is in London till Wednesday. Text him. I was like, but what do I say? And he was like, what do you want to say? And I literally wrote some text that was like, hello, bat signal from Lena. Come over in the Batmobile. And I showed it to him. He was like, that's an unacceptable text. Just write, hi, it's Lena. Do you want to hang out? But I was like, I don't know what I'm asking. I don't know why we're hanging out. And I wrote to him and he just immediately started responding. And like, what I loved was it was like warm. It was kind. It didn't have any of that edge of like aggressive sexuality that I feel like has entered the chat for almost all men I've interacted with, where it's like it really quickly switches into something that you're not necessarily prepared for, but feel you have to show up for. He was just sweet, kind, complimentary, but not too much. So we like talked about The Simpsons for like 24 hours. And then he said, do you want to hang out? I'll come over. We can order some pho. And he walked into my apartment and he started like inspecting all my stuff. Like he was just like, what's this? And like picked up my watercolor paper and he was like, your speaker sucks. And then I had these cups of mud because I was trying to decide on the right color for the mud in a mud fight in Catherine Called Birdie. He starts looking at all my mud and being like, I think this one's good. I think this one's a little too red. I can't do his English accent. He was wearing like a tie-dye t-shirt down to his knees, weird like long johns with a giraffe pattern on them and a bright green snood, which is like a neck warmer. And I was like, this man is unbelievably odd. And then we had dinner, immediately launched into like a talk about all of our trauma. And then we were sitting on the couch together. And I just looked at him and I was like, oh, it's you. Like it was that feeling of just like, oh, And that night I'd been sleeping terribly. I'd been having the worst insomnia, which is not like me. And then we just sat on my bed and like for the first time, I just fell into like the coziest, warmest sleep. Oh, that's home. That's home. And then I thought, oh, he's so cool. 
He's like a cool guy, London guy about town. He must do that with all the ladies. I'll never hear from him again. And then the next day, we talked about watching this TV show that he loves. It's an English show by the guy who created Peep Show. And he was like, do you want to watch it later at eight? And then he just started like coming over every day and watching TV. And I remember the second night he came over, I looked over at him like laughing hysterically at a show he'd seen like 80 times. (laughs) What a great quality. (laughs) It's such a good quality. And laughing so hard in that way, like he didn't care who saw him. And I was like to his right, which is my side on the bed now. And I looked at him and I was like, oh, this site is just one that I'll be seeing for a long time. And I told my parents a couple days later, I was like, I met a guy. My dad was like, tell me about him. I was like, he's a musician. He's been sober for five years. He kind of moves around from one friend's house to another. And my dad was like, don't tell me anything else about him. I don't want to know unless you decide to get married. (laughs) And then a few months later, I was like, I think we're going to get married. Oh, Lena, I'm so happy for you. Thank you, my love. I'm really happy for you and seeing you get to grow into this new iteration of being loved from afar as someone who cares about you from afar has been beautiful. And I think no one should be congratulated for loving us. My mom likes to say things to my husband like, thank you so much for loving her. We're very relieved. And I'm like, oh, God. My mom does the same thing to Michael. Like as if it's the most shocking thing that has ever happened. Like as if like we just did not know what was going to happen here. And we are just so relieved. But I do think a guy who can love a complicated, intense emotional, philosophical, and public woman is my favorite kind of guy, a very interesting guy. Yeah. Forgiving. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Oh my God. My husband's so forgiving. Today I walked into our bedroom with like three towels on my head and said, I'm Boba Fett. And he was like, you don't know who Boba Fett is. (laughs) Like, I don't know what I thought Boba Fett was. I thought he had like a big white lump on his head. And he was like, he's a bounty hunter. And I was like, so am I. (laughs) (laughs) We should get to Haley. Haley, our friend Haley. You are going to just be wonderful in talking with callers. You've got to be the friend that people call for advice. I always say to people, I'm like, I'm not going to be the friend who's going to be good at coming to a birthday party or going out for drinks. But if you have an emergency at three in the morning, I will be the correct friend for you. That's a beautiful, beautiful person. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi. Hi, Haley. Hi. We're really excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you guys. I'm a huge fan. (laughs) Thank you for your letter. It was beautifully written and so thoughtful. Oh, thank you. Haley, will you tell our listeners what is going on? Yeah, so I met my old classmate about eight years ago at that time. It's been 10 years now. And we went out for my 30th with a friend. This was two years ago, right? Two and a half years ago, yes. So we went out for lunch. And then I guess I'll call him Jim. I don't know why, but we'll call him Jim. Yes, Jim's a great name for him. Yeah. So Jim and I went bowling and we decided to keep drinking. And then he was renting his girlfriend's place at the time with her and she was away at school for her PhD program in a different state. 
So he technically wasn't allowed to have people come back over to the house, but he wanted to keep hanging out with me. And because we've known each other like for so long and we're kind of being 20 something year olds again, I was like, yeah, sure. Let's do like the teenage thing and do what the parents don't want us to do. Yeah. So we go back over and we proceed to keep drinking. We're having a good time. We're dancing to music. We're just hanging out. And then... Next thing I know, we wake up next to each other and we are both naked. And I am horrified at the situation. He is horrified at the situation. We have slept together and he decided not to tell his girlfriend at the time. While we were hanging out, he was telling me, I don't really know if I want to proceed with the relationship next time I go out there. I think we're going to have a conversation about it because it's long distance. And then on top of that, like she wants to commit to something that I'm not ready for. Jim. I know. Jim. Jim, what are you talking about here? (laughs) Jim, you're being a classic. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not interested in him in any sort of way. Like we are friends. What happened was a huge a drunken mistake. I guess you could say there was some attraction because that wouldn't happen if there wasn't any sort of anything. And it definitely wasn't like a non-consensual type of situation. That's what I was going to ask just yeah. because you said you woke up and you weren't sure. I wanted to make sure you felt like it was consensual and safe for you. Yeah, it was. Okay. He's a really great guy. Like overall, he's kind of one of those dumb boy type of guys. We've been talking about them this very episode. Well, there you go. Yeah. And he definitely has committed himself to be in this relationship with someone who is definitely willing to commit and settle down. He's put himself in this situation and didn't think the whole thing through, I guess. I don't even know. So anyway, jump to why I'm even bringing this up now is because two weeks ago, he did three hits of acid. Why? I'm not exactly sure. And on a weekday. Jim. Yeah. So still going into the dumb boy type of situation and decisions and told his now wife about it. So they did decide to get married and they did say that the relationship got better during quarantine and COVID and everything. Haley, how do you know this info about the acid and his relationship got better? Like how much contact were you guys having? So after that whole thing happened, he wanted to keep a friendship with me, which I was okay with. I was just also very confused. I obviously had like a certain self-loathing pattern that was going on with me where I wasn't making the right decisions. I obviously wasn't loving myself enough to keep myself from doing stuff like this. So he did try to maintain friends with me and we did. But I stayed away from him for like two years. And didn't you say that you also got sober at that point and made some changes? I did. I made really big changes because I never wanted anything like that to ever happen again. Oh, good for you. It's amazing. Okay, Haley, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. During these two and a half years, Mm -hmm. because I know that there's the big event that happened Mm -hmm. recently where you're essentially confronted. Yeah. And you wrote that both of them asked me to take responsibility. Yeah. So you get this phone call from his wife. It was a text message on Instagram. So a DM. Oh. We do not actually have each other's contact information because I don't have a relationship with her like that. I also have met her and I don't particularly like her just as a person in general. What did she say in this text? So she said that I, as a self-proclaimed feminist, it's pretty much laughable that I would do something like this to another woman. I am also becoming a therapist myself. I'm in grad school right now. And she's also a therapist. She has a PhD in psychology. And she told me that for the sake of my future clients, hopefully I do better. Uh, yes. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. That feels like a threat. It was a threat. It feels like a threat. And the other thing that I'm going to say is that when women try to wield the, you say you're a feminist, but I don't think that's very feminist. I think feminism involves leaving space for messiness and complexity the same way that we allow men to have, the same way that she's allowing her now husband to occupy a space of complexity. And it's very classic, but putting those labels on you is a way not to be as angry as she is that it was Jim's responsibility to let you know what happened and give her an informed picture of who she was marrying. Yeah. He didn't do that. And now she does not have the control. She's in pain. And we understand that. And I think every person has been in a place where 
They don't want to blame the person that they love for having hurt them so badly. And so they try to make an outside person the source of that pain. Yeah. But I think also the joint desire to force you to take some kind of responsibility. Well, it means his story, Jim's story, is one where you're the aggressor, Haley. Yeah. I mean, this is only what I suspect. Another clue is that he told you... I may be breaking up with her, like it's long distance. He's trying to cover his bases. He wants you to think you're safe, that this situation is maybe dissolving and you don't need to talk about it because we're probably going to break up anyway. Yeah, maybe. And what he's not noticing, and I hope I'm not diving into this too soon, but this really came out from your letter, is that by changing your own patterns and by trying to take better care of yourself because the situation upset you so much, You've taken the ultimate accountability, which is a big shift in your life. And so demanding that you take responsibility for the incident is both denying Jim's part in the incident and denying all the progress that you've made for yourself. And when I read it, I thought for the sake of your own self-respect, having to announce I did this and I'm sorry is unacceptable. Unacceptable. Even if you did it just to calm them down, you cannot send that signal to the little Haley inside of Haley that you did this, you hurt a marriage, you hurt a woman, because it's also allowing Jim to live inside of a victim mentality. And I think the fact that Jim is not saying to his now wife, this is between us. This is something I did. I made the choice to then take hallucinogens and clearly express something of a great deal of guilt about he is not taking responsibility for his part in their marriage. And he's trying to outsource blame in a way that I think is emotionally violent. I feel the same way, which is why I got defensive when I replied to her. I shouldn't have replied to her. One, that's a huge regret of mine that I even replied to her because it wasn't going to go anyway. It's hard not to when someone speaks to you that way. It's yeah. really hard not to. And I did say sorry for spending time around her and them. It wasn't a group setting, but I should have stayed away. Like that was on me. I was reassured by Jim that it would be okay. So I believe him. I've never been in this situation. I never want to be in this situation. In the past, Jim has come to me about relationship issues. Jim. This was like a long time ago, like before he even got involved, because I am also the therapist and I like to help and I like to give advice and I like to give people space to feel their feelings. And the really horrible thing that she said to me last year, I, sorry, I'm going to get a slightly emotional in saying this. I lost um, the love of my life last year. I'm so sorry. He'd been a part of my life for 14 years, and we finally found each other, and uh, he suddenly passed away. Oh, Haley, the last two years of your life have been hard. Yeah, and she decided to tell me that it was karma that he passed away, that I deserved it. Oh, God. No, 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 no. I would like for her future clients, for her to take accountability for her lack of empathy. <laughs> yeah. I, said. I can't believe anyone would say something like that. It's horrible. And it's nasty and it's cruel and it's not true. She just wanted to hurt you. Yeah. You of know, course. which really sucks. It's to Lena's point that Jim is not stepping up. And if he was the kind of friend that we wanted him to be, he would say, we may have made a mistake, but you can't speak to her like that. What she went through is something that we can't imagine because we still are here to work this out with each other. And I know that you know what she said isn't true, but I think it's important for you to hear people say it because I think when people say something that horrible to us, even if we intellectually know it's not true, our bodies receive it. And so I want you to know that nothing about what she said is true. And you are so brave for even continuing to study. You're continuing to be in your life. You're continuing to show up for your feelings. And I know that we here are so amazed by you. And what she should really be saying is thank you for showing some of the cracks and challenges in my relationship so that I can make a decision about whether I want to stay or not. I'm really angry that Jim didn't tell me, but... It's not your fault. Yeah, I appreciate that because last week was an entire spiral of me needing to take like CBD to like calm myself and already take like my meds in general. 
And the reason why I even submitted this in the first place is because I was spiraling so much. Who wouldn't? The only advice is blocking all of them. Never, ever, ever having them in your life. No contact. They're poisonous. You're not going to get any answers. And the thing is, I think blocking is one of the most healthy things we can do is just to go, nope, here's the wall. You don't get to speak to me like that. Blocking them and also you're already doing the work, which is the work to take care of yourself. And that's probably the work that led your partner into your life. And I'm so sorry that you lost him. And that's the work that's going to get you surrounded by love. And what's so beautiful in what I read in your letter is that you recognized your part in it, weren't defensive, while also recognizing that you are a deeply beautiful and important person who doesn't deserve to be spoken to like this. I mean, they have their own road of challenges and pain ahead of them, whether they make this relationship work or they don't. But the fact is, even though you are the kind of resident therapist in your friend group, this one, not your problem. Yeah, I wish I could take that backpack of like pain and guilt. Me too. And I will carry it up a mountain. Like, we'll both take the backpack and trade it. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And the incident happened. It's like a car accident. Shit just happens sometimes. I want you to work on loving yourself as corny as it sounds because you've so earned it. Look at what you've done. So you are strong. It. You're here. You're strong. You're brave. You're beautiful. I got to say, like, coming from the both of you, like, so I'm a frequent listener, not only to this podcast, but also to Dr. Shepard's podcast. And listening to the both of you, like, on his podcast and just being so vulnerable and so open and just willing to own what I'm trying to own to grow hearing it come from you guys I appreciate it like more than them <laughs> you're really inspiring you are and I'm gonna take this with me through the day because you know a really great piece of advice I got from I don't know if either of you know the therapist Gabor Mate who's amazing and he's written some beautiful books one of them is called when the body says no and it's about how we hold trauma in our body yeah and it was a simple but important piece of advice. Just he said to me, you know, I hear you talk about all of these people in your life with love and concern. And then you talk about yourself in this way that is so different. And just think, would you let any of your friends speak about themselves that way? Would you speak about them that way? Anyone that you love? And I just want you to think, Haley, like, would you speak about a patient with that negativity, a friend? Nobody. And your job now is to just love yourself, to wrap yourself up in a cocoon, whether it's watching Below Deck Mediterranean or whether it's my personal favorite reading the Property Brothers Reveal magazine <laughs> and eating gluten-free crackers, whatever it is that just makes you feel safe, whole, and allows you to just soothe that voice inside you that is fighting you, that is your job right now. And keeping them far away. Far away. There's no conclusion to this, but you having them absolutely out of your life. No talking about them. If you can help it, you can talk with your mom or a trusted source on occasion. But we're trying to put the puzzle pieces together and you can just make yourself crazy. This is you being awesome. It is now that time. And, you know, I haven't been through what you've been through, but I know what it's like to have a couple of years where it just feels like the dominoes are all falling in the wrong direction. And what I want to say is that all of this is going to add up to give you this strength that's going to allow you to care for your patients, the people around you and yourself in a new and revitalized way. And you should be so proud of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Now we got the future. <laughs> thank you so much. Haley, I'm thinking about you and thank you. Same here. Love you, Haley. We're grateful for you. Grateful for you both. Thank you so much. Lena, I just can't thank you enough. This was the joy of my life, but I just, I love you. I love you too. This whole thing made me a little emotional today. Me too. I really needed it and I feel so lucky. Me too. I love you, lady. I love you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Okay, bye, Angel. Bye. Bye. 